You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off this week. Vancouver police need your help tracking down suspects in an assault that left a man with life-altering injuries. Our Grace Key is in Yaletown tonight where it happened. And Grace, police are releasing videos surveillance of the incident today. And a warning, it is disturbing. But this happened almost a year ago. Yeah, we're just in front of Cham uh, Pierre Champagne Lounge in Yaletown where the assault happened. Now, police are saying that their investigators have gone through uh, several uh, different investigative avenues and now they are asking for the public's help. It's shocking to watch. The man in the baseball hat throws two quick sucker punches. A second suspect later pulls out his phone to take photos of the victim and then allegedly assaults the victim's friend. It happened March 31st at 2 in the morning just outside of Pierre's Champagne Lounge in Yaletown. According to the owner, the victims were in his lounge and were asked to leave. A couple of young gentlemen they were in, I think they had a little bit too much to drink. They were asked to leave. They came back about an hour later. Um, there was an altercation with a couple of gentlemen that weren't in the club. The owner says the two victims were not allowed back into the lounge and he doesn't believe the suspects were ever inside. But police say that will form part of their investigation. We're now reaching out to the public and asking for help. We want to talk to all people involved and get their version of what happened. Staff called 911, but by the time officers arrived, the two suspects ran off. One victim had minor injuries, but the 28-year-old Burnaby man who was sucker punched suffered serious head trauma and life-changing injuries. Pierre's is part of Restaurant Watch, and the owner says they work closely with police to ensure a safe environment. Most places like this would have two dormers where we run four. We have where we could have two cameras, we have five. We have a dormant, they're all on headsets. We want everyone when they come in. So we, we want people to feel safe. For us to be successful, people have to feel safe. Well, they obviously take a lot of precautions, Grace, but do we know why these two groups got into it in the first place? Yeah, that's still a little unclear right now where exactly these two groups met up, how the altercation originally formed. Police are saying that's going to be part of that investigation. Sophie? All right, Grace Key in Yelltown. Grace, thank you. The mysterious disappearance of a cowboy has now been deemed suspicious. Ben Tyner was reported missing at the end of January when his riderless horse was discovered wandering on a logging road. Catherine Urquhart reports on why RCMP now believe this case involves criminal activity. At Nicola Ranch and in nearby Merritt, locals are learning some troubling news. Police now believe foul play was likely involved in the disappearance of ranch manager Ben Tyner. Mr. Tyner's disappearance is suspicious, that most likely his disappearance is criminally linked. The career cowboy was last seen January 26th. Two days later, his saddled and riderless horse Gunny was discovered by a local hunter. That prompted a week-long search involving dozens of volunteers from 19 search and rescue teams. But they never found any sign of the missing man. In mid-February, Tyner's family returned home to Wyoming, taking Ben's horse and dogs. Our hearts are shattered and our lives have been thrown into turmoil. I have uh, some difficulty finding the words to express to you all the sadness and loss that our family is failing from this. When I look at what my brother accomplished with his life, 
in a short time here, it truly amazes me. Police won't reveal why the 32-year-old's disappearance is suspicious, but say area residents don't need to be concerned for their own safety. I hope they really find out what happened. That's terrible. Police are again requesting assistance from the public. We are asking if you have dash cam video and you were in the Merritt area in, uh, on January 27th and 28th when Mr. Tyner was reported to us, disappeared, uh, missing to us, that you please return that or turn that information over to the Southeast District Major Crime Unit. With temperatures increasing, a search for Tyner could resume his family, and this entire community anxious to know what happened to Ben. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The car two teens were in when it careened into the water near trail has been located by RCMP. But divers continue to search for the 15-year-old boy and 18-year-old girl who are presumed to have drowned. They were in the back seat of the vehicle when it left the road and plunged down an embankment into the water. The two people in the front of the car managed to make it out. Police are asking drivers to avoid the area while RCMP continue to investigate. A rather nasty surprise for a pair of hikers in Squamish. After a tough climb, they came up short for a download ticket on the Sea to Sky gondola. As Sarah McDonald reports, what happened next resulted in calls to both RCMP and search and rescue, and now an apology. The hike itself is challenging and at times technical. Keep it up, Tina. The Sea to Summit Trail stretching some seven kilometers through the Squamish backcountry, but typically not ending like this. They let them go down because they have cash on them and they said no to us, so now we have to walk back down. That's Shelby Fulton sending out a frantic message on Sunday during what she and her partner describe as a traumatic and terrifying experience that only started after they'd completed a grueling six hours of hiking in winter conditions. We were in no shape to continue hiking. The sun was going down. The conditions were horrible. But they missed the cutoff of the operating hours for the gondola they expected would download them and were told they'd have to pay an extra fee to ride it after hours. Cash they didn't have on hand and couldn't retrieve from an out-of-service ATM machine. That's when they were told by gondola staff they'd have to make the trip by foot. He told us that it would be $60 for the two of us because they charge more when people show up late. It's not publicly advertised, but that protocol is in place as a deterrent. <laughs> Though in this case, Fulton and her partner never made that 11-kilometer trek down, the pair requiring rescue instead, with RCMP and search and rescue ultimately tasked with tracking them down. The one couple that did walk down the road out the back found um, themselves in the dark and uh, maybe not totally prepared. Tired and hungry and after hours and, and quite obviously ill-prepared to hike out, we should have downloaded them. So it's a, a moment of learning for us. In fact, the Sea to Sky Gondola says that decision by staff to send the pair packing has now sparked a review of company protocol that these hikers want made public <laughs> to ensure their experience with this dangerous download isn't shared. Sarah McDonald, Global News, Squamish. Another record-breaking day on the Lower Mainland, and South Coasters are taking full advantage, soaking up the sun while it lasts along the seawall in Falls Creek and Coal Harbor, playing some ball at the park, starting on their tans at the beach, and of course, it is perfect patio weather. 
Well, meteorologist Yvonne Shell is enjoying it out there tonight at Deer Lake Park. Uh, Yvonne, with more on the records and how long this beautiful weather will last. Yes, today was day three of the record-breaking heat, and we saw over 20 records fall across the province. Here's a snapshot, just a few. Uh, the airport, we did see a record high of 14.8, the old one of 14.5. Abbotsford up to 24 degrees, and that's actually the hot spot across the country. Squamish today getting up to 24 in areas near Victoria. Now, today was day three. The potential, once again, to see record heat will be for tomorrow. A bit of a change will be on the way for the latter half of our week, and leading in towards the weekend. I'll have more on that and our first day of spring as well. So, All right, thanks for that, Yvonne. It is not the kind of thing that generally creates big drama, but there was a ruckus today in the House of Commons as the Trudeau government laid out its spending promises in the 2019 federal budget. Keith Baldry has more on the highlights and why the finance minister's speech was drowned out by opposition members. Normally, budget days in Ottawa are predictable affairs, but not today. It took a while, but Finance Minister Bill Morneau was finally able to deliver his budget speech, although the opposition heckled like never before. Upset, the Liberals earlier in the day had shut down the Justice Committee's hearing on the SNC-Lavalin affair. Despite all that heckling, interruptions and delays, the budget was indeed tabled, and it is a big spending document aimed at the middle class, millennials and seniors. The highlights include a new 5 to 10% matching in equity mortgage for first-time home buyers, as much as a $5,000 credit towards buying a zero-emissions vehicle, anywhere from a $250 to $5,000 benefit for job skills training upgrades, and there are more incentives for seniors to stay in the workforce. Other spending includes $2.2 billion for municipal infrastructure projects, $3.25 billion for Indigenous health and water quality improvements. All in all, it amounts to more than $22 billion in new spending over the next five years. And the bottom line projects a deficit of almost $20 billion in the coming year. But the Conservatives weren't so much interested in the budget today as they were in a scandal that has so far cost four Liberals their jobs. The actions of the government today have been unprecedented, have been an assault on democracy. And the NDP blasted the budget for failing to meet expectations on so many levels. What we needed to see was a commitment to build half a million new affordable homes. Fast-tracking money for co-op housing. This government again failed on their fourth and final attempt. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This is the last Liberal budget before the next election. We'll know after the votes are counted in October if it's enough to give them the chance to table another one. All right, well, let's talk more about that. Keith is live in Victoria now. Keith, how would you rate this budget when it comes to appealing to voters ahead of that next election? Well, it's a safe budget. There's not much uh, to, to take uh, issue with in this. There's no tax increases. Uh, there's a lot of money being spent, uh, but it's uh, being spent about a mile wide and an inch deep. There's not one particular thing you can hang your hat on in this, in this budget. A couple things, though. Uh, that municipal number I've, I mentioned in my story, $2.2 billion, that means a lot of mayors across the country are going to be very happy over the summer. There's a, a series of uh, cabinet ministers coming their way with a lot of big checks to spend on infrastructures in their hometown. That's going to be popular. Also look for more information on the Pharmacare program, National Drug Program. Didn't get a lot of attention in this budget. A couple mentions. You can expect the Liberals to talk about that a lot on the eve of the October election. All right. Thanks for that, Keith.
Yeah. Well, as the deadline approaches to fill out speculation tax forms, new numbers tonight on how many British Columbians have yet to declare their home. And figuring out who owes and who doesn't could cost the province a pretty penny. But guess we'll be on the hook for that. Richard Zussman reports. 1.6 million British Columbians received a letter like this. Homeowners who are told to go online and exempt themselves from the speculation tax. The problem is there's still a lot of people who haven't done it yet and the deadline is fast approaching. More than 250,000 British Columbians have not yet filled out the form. That's about 84% of those who receive the letters actually going online and doing it. The provincial government says it doesn't take too long. The problem is if you don't exempt yourselves, you will get a bill. The government says they have people to help if you have an issue with filling out the form. But Minister James, it's not about to uh, make life more difficult for people. If they're having trouble with the forms, if they're not able to fill out the forms, we'll be following up with those individuals to ensure they understand that this is about, for most people, uh, realizing that they're exempt from the tax rather than they'll have to pay it. But the opposition says this is just bureaucratic red tape and could end up costing taxpayers in the long run. The provincial government will need to figure out how to pay for exempting people if they don't end up putting in their forms before the deadline. The finance department doesn't yet know how much that will cost. There's also an ad blitz underway. Again, it's unknown how much that's going to cost. This is classic New Democrat administrative bungling. It's atrocious. Though a lot of people haven't filled out their forms yet, the tax overall is popular. A recent research co-poll found that more than 65% of British Columbians believe the speculation tax is a good way to address housing affordability. If you can't find the letter you receive from the provincial government, make sure you visit the province's website to ensure you exempt yourself. The question is, how many people will end up with bills they aren't supposed to receive? Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Right now, though, BC Ferries is examining the potential for a passenger ferry to serve the Victoria area. It's just one of several transportation ideas now being considered. Kylie Stanton reports on what's driving the change and why support for the ferry option is strong. It's called the Colwood Crawl for a reason. Tens of thousands of commuters spend hours every day inching along this stretch of Highway 1, making their way from the West Shore into Victoria. Had to leave about an hour ahead of time. So it is quite brutal coming all the way downtown if you have to every day. But now there's a new proposal being floated as a solution to the daily grind. The notion is a, a passenger-only vessel, uh, so it could help ease congestion. A pre-feasibility study commissioned by BC Ferries explores this idea. In the 201-page report by SNC-Lavalin, it says the most advantageous option would be to have two ferries operating at 30-minute intervals 16 hours a day. They'd move between three proposed locations in only 20 minutes, initially from Royal Bay over to Ship Point in Victoria's Inner Harbour, with an option to add an Esquimalt terminal down the line. To make it financially viable, the recommended fare is five seventy-five. If people were driving into a uh, town, they'd still be paying more than that for parking. But then there's the money it will take to get it up and running. The capital costs amount to more than $41 million, with an additional $10 million a year to cover staffing and fuel.
from a capital standpoint is really where we're going to be struggling and why we need to have the uh, uh, province on as partners. In response to this project, the Ministry of Transportation said the study is to look at the possibility of whether such a proposal would be feasible. At first glance, the report presents a number of opportunities and challenges. And while it's still in early stages, the fact a ferry is even being considered is making a splash with commuters. Be a lot nicer than sitting there on the road going, are you moving yet? Fingers crossed. <laughs> For now, they'll just have to be patient. But that's something they're used to. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. The Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter say they are the victim of discrimination against women in the name of inclusion. The organization stripped of its city funding recently. Nadia Stewart reports on what's at the root of the defunding and why some are cheering the decision. It is a hit to their budget. One Hilla Kerner with the Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter says they didn't see coming. I think it's an undemocratic and coercive decision. I think the city should have respected um, our autonomy to operate the way we are. Kerner says over the past 10 years, there's never been a question from the city about approving municipal money for public education. But this year, the renewal has been successfully challenged by critics who say rape relief's pledge to serve only women and not trans women is discrimination. Of course, the transgender people should receive services and they deserve safety and dignity like the rest of us. It does not and should not need to be the expense on women's groups like ours. But transgender rights activist Morgan Auger says Vancouver Rape Relief is the last organization of its kind to uphold such a policy. We need to test our rules and our policies about inclusion on the more difficult and complex cases. And there's no doubt that this is a complex case. But hiding behind the idea that they're the only ones who can provide the service is ridiculous. Kerner says they do support sex workers and they would never turn away trans women who come to them looking for help. But that hasn't stopped a heated debate from erupting on social media. City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young says she considered this debate and new inclusive municipal policies in making her decision. Our job is to stand up for people that um, are discriminated against. When you're talking about public funding and taxpayer dollars, we want to support organizations that support the values of inclusion that the city of Vancouver has stood up for. What I care about is uh, elected officials. They did not upheld the responsibility to the women of Vancouver. Much of rape relief's funding comes from the provincial government, and Kerner says she does not expect that will change. Nadia Stork, Global News. A vessel has returned to the shores of Vancouver this week with a wealth of knowledge about a species rarely observed in the open Pacific Ocean. The Secret Lives of Salmon mission has spent the last month scouring the seas in the most extensive survey ever done. Linda Aylesworth has more on what they're hoping to uncover. We know a fair bit about salmon when they're young and living in coastal waters, as well as when they return from sea as mature fish. But what happens during the years in between is a mystery, one that an international expedition set out from Vancouver to solve last month. We're on a voyage of discovery here. It's the first time out in this area in the wintertime looking at the conditions experienced by salmon at this time of year. For five weeks aboard a Russian research vessel, 21 scientists from five North Pacific countries lived and worked together as they traveled 8,000 kilometers around the Gulf of Alaska, dipping their nets to collect salmon and their prey. And everybody is just waiting, eager with anticipation to see what, what is in the net, how many we get, what species, etc. And now they're back, bursting with myriad discoveries. 
It's a big challenge to describe our result today in a few words. It's, it's very big. We have seen, gone out there and seen the fish and seen what they're doing. It was some of the things we expected, other things we were completely blown away with. One of their goals, to determine the origins of salmon species they collected, something only possible with DNA analysis, which they were able to do on board for the first time. I will add these to this plate and incubate them with a buffer. The absolutely new technique which has been developed specifically for this voyage and been successfully tested. With some Pacific salmon runs on the brink of extinction, the race is on to learn what might be happening out at sea that's contributing to their struggles. It will take years to assess the data collected. Hopefully it will contain answers and solutions. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Terrifying moments as several skiers trigger an avalanche in the Austrian Alps and it was all caught on camera. The group intending to ski down the slope when, uh, one at a time when it suddenly gave way. Luckily, the man with the camera was able to dig himself out but was in a panic, unsure if there were others buried beneath the heavy snow. Luckily, everyone made it out and was just a bit shaken by the incident. A chemical fire is blanketing the skies above Houston in thick black smoke for the third straight day. Firefighters say they're forced to take a defensive approach and let the fire burn through the remaining fuel. The tanks contain a variety of chemicals used in gasoline and solvents. Many residents have raised the alarm about the effects on air quality, but officials have ruled the smoke is not dangerous. The cause of the blaze is under investigation. More questions are being raised tonight about the relationship between the manufacturer of the plane involved in that deadly Ethiopian Airlines crash and the government body responsible for regulation in the U.S. Some say the relationship between Boeing and the FAA is too close. Now an investigation is being launched. The Department of Transportation's call for a review of the 737 MAX follows demands by federal authorities that Boeing and the FAA hold on to documents relating to the troubled jet. The two fatal crashes involving the MAX just five months apart have raised questions about the relationship between the FAA and Boeing. We are bending over too much to the corporate interests and not enough to the public interest in the areas of safety. Congressman Steve Cohen wants hearings on a process he worries has gotten too cozy. After 9-11, Congress approved a system that allows manufacturers like Boeing to largely self-certify aircraft, including their safety systems. And I think this was a mistake we made. And I think we're, we're learning from it. And unfortunately, 350 people in the world have, have died because of that, I think. The Department of Transportation's inspector general found in 2012, Boeing engineers had too much sway over safety approvals for new aircraft. And FAA managers have not always supported employee efforts to hold Boeing accountable. Safety is at the core of who we are at Boeing. Avoiding questions from reporters, Boeing's CEO used a recorded video message to speak publicly for the first time since Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 crashed last week. We're also committed to making safe airplanes even safer and providing the best products, training and support to our global airline customers and pilots. Affordable housing isn't just an issue for young people. Thousands of seniors in B.C. struggle to make ends meet on a fixed income. Now there's a new option for them, albeit a very small one. But as Tanya Beja reports tonight, this micro-innovation is making a huge difference. 
This is all I need. I'm going to have a coffee table. Terry Murphy is settling into her new suite. After 26 years in a downtown apartment, Murphy downsized to this Burnaby rental. Now I'm paying less rent by uh, about $300, less a month. That's money in my pocket. The savings come at a cost, space. Okay. Murphy is living in a 350-square-foot micro-studio. She says the prospect so of squeezing them. in was at first terrifying. See, once I decided to do it and got rid of everything, all the clothes, and it was like, wow, I feel better. A feeling Dave Peacock shares. The 72-year-old lived in an extended care unit after having a stroke, but says he's regained his privacy and independence here and has advice for other seniors considering the same move. Stop hoarding. <laughs> because if you look at anybody's storage locker, even here, you know, with people who have just moved in, mine, mine included, there's stuff in there that I'll never use. Peacock and Murphy are tenants in the McKay Apartments, newly built for seniors with rents at 975 for a studio and 1300 for a one bedroom. Advocates say there's a desperate need for more nonprofit buildings like this one because seniors can face a two to five year wait for affordable housing elsewhere. Competition is really, really tight. So, you know, for them to get in, very difficult. Let's go to our suite. Fairhaven Home Society runs the property and designed it in ways that encourage residents to interact. Part of that involves allowing pets. Keeps our seniors active, engaged, and in, involved in their community. You want some Wawa? It's really comfortable here with her. I don't have to worry. She's uh, happy. And so am I. <laughs> Tanya Beja, Global News. A new baby in New York has made a big debut. The baby girl shattering a 30-year record for the biggest baby born at the hospital. Little Harper weighed in at 15 pounds, 5 ounces. That's double the size of an average newborn. Medical officials are checking state records to see if she is the biggest to be born in New York. Both mom and baby are healthy and recovering. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Well, these rising temperatures of late may be cause for celebration for many, but for some, it is a sign of things to come. The past two summers have brought record-breaking wildfire seasons, and while it's too early to predict what this year has in store for us, the province wants to ensure they are ready. Jules Knox has more on how they plan to do it. An earlier start to the fire season that will drag into the fall. That's what officials are bracing for. The behavior of the fires the last two seasons uh, has been uh, much more aggressive than we've seen before. Widespread flames in 2017 and 2018 prompted back-to-back -back provincial states of emergency for the first time in BC's history. Now there's concern over the low snowpack this year in the Okanagan. It really depends on what happens in the weather systems uh, in the spring, how fast the melt is, how much rain we get, and then of course the wind conditions. The government touting its firefighting budget increase up to $101 million from $64 million last year. Well, this budget uplift of 58% is going to improve uh, the BC Wildfire Service's ability for rapid response. But the province has spent more than that fighting fires in every year since 2012. The government says it will dig deeper into its pockets if necessary. But it's hoping to avoid that with prevention tactics like spending $10 million on prescribed burns. And increasing the operating periods of aircraft so they're available earlier in the season. 
and trying out new technologies like night vision goggles for firefighters and drones to help with fire mapping. The government also investing $400,000 in training forest professionals to help better manage the wildfires. We need to have forest professionals understand how things are changing as a result of, of um, a changing climate and we have to manage forests slightly differently. And with the fire season on the horizon, officials are reminding homeowners to fire smart their properties and their communities before it's too late. Jules Knox, Global News, Kelowna. Taking distraction to a whole new level. What a driver busted in downtown Vancouver did that had police tweeting about it. That's right after the weather forecast. All right, meteorologist Yvonne Shell is out enjoying that record-breaking uh, temperatures, not in Burnaby, but certainly, as you said earlier, Yvonne, uh, around certain parts of Metro Vancouver and the south coast. Absolutely, Sophie, especially if you're away from the water today, temperatures have been into the low 20s and we'll continue to see that potential once again for tomorrow. As we take a look, uh, we'll go outside and we'll look at our tower cam. So it's fantastic out there. Uh, temperatures have bumped up and it has been a touch cooler for areas near the water. Going to the next graphic, somebody just needs to prompt me to as to, as to what it is. Uh, we are... We're looking at numbers across the province. So we are going to see it cool once again overnight, especially for the interior with the clear skies. We'll be below the freezing mark for the central and southern half of the province. And then it'll rebound, especially for the afternoon. We can see that range in temperatures across Victoria with uh, 20 degrees. And then areas into the interior once again will be into the upper teens. As we put the forecast into play, long-range forecast, upper-level chart, we'll see the ridge starting to push its way towards the east. It'll weaken across the south coast and the timing for Thursday, Fridays when we'll see more cloud cover rolling in and a touch cooler leading in towards the weekend. Here's a glance at what we're seeing uh, for Metro Vancouver. Uh, we are going to be looking at uh, anywhere between uh, 14 near the water and then areas away from the water will be up to 21 degrees. The northern half of the province, plenty of sunshine. It's into the interior that we're seeing uh, temperatures into the teens. Even the northeastern corners of the province will be up to 12 degrees. Southern half of the province is where we're seeing the temperatures once again. Areas near Soyuz will be warmer. Metro Vancouver and along the water will be anywhere into the teens and then it's areas away from the water that it will be up to 20 degrees as we welcome our first day of spring officially at 2.58 in the afternoon tomorrow. We'll see another day of sunshine, the chance to see record highs once again. It'll be on Thursday that we'll see a few clouds rolling in and then on Friday towards the evening. If you've got plans for the weekend, it'll be on our Saturday morning that we're seeing a chance of showers. It should clear out quite quickly and then on Sunday we'll be back into some sunshine but still two more warm days for Metro Vancouver. So, all right. Thanks very much, Yvonne. It is distracted driving month and no shortage of tickets are being handed out in Vancouver. 1100 so far. And just yesterday, an example so bad, Vancouver police took the opportunity to call out the driver on Twitter. Here's why the driver caught not once, but twice for being on their cell phone. Even worse, the tickets were issued within minutes of each other and just a block apart. To think that a $368 a hefty fine would be enough to discourage somebody from continuing that behavior, but in this case it wasn't. So we need to, to change our behavior and we all have a role to play in that. 
Now, as you heard, in each case, the driver was handed a $368 ticket, but that isn't the final price tag. They're also on the hook for a $444 driver risk premium and eight points on their license worth $624. That's a grand total of $1,804. Almost $2,000 That's a lot. Built to you in a matter of six minutes and one block. That it took six minutes to get from one block of Seymour to the next is also interesting. What was, what, so what was the phone call about? Or exactly. The you, probably, like, you won't believe this. I just got a ticket. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably what happened. <laughs> okay. Just put the phone somewhere else. I know. I know. Especially after you got the ticket. Okay, is there still a mathematical chance? No, I Yes, there is a mathematical chance. There really is. There is a mathematical chance right. for the Canucks well, to make the playoffs. Well, I was never good at math. I was also going to say there's a mathematical chance for us to win the Lotto Max if oh. we buy a ticket. I mean, their I odds imagine. are better than ours, but it's still pretty much a long shot. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, for those Canuck fans who would rather see Vancouver lose down the stretch, giving them a better chance at the top draft pick this June, the last few games have been rather frustrating. The Canucks are 3-0-1 in their last four. They have Ottawa in town tomorrow. They have a lot of home games now from here on out. Uh, the game against the Senators, you would think, would be a very good chance for the Canucks to win again. Vancouver right now is the ninth worst team overall in the NHL. If they stayed that way, their chances of winning the draft lottery would be 5%. The Avalanche and Wild are ahead of Vancouver in the standings, fighting for wild card spots. That's Tyson Berry, and here he is again, scoring a goal. one nothing for Colorado. I feel like we have variations on this conversation every year around this time. About? About whether they should make a run for the playoffs or, you know, go yes. for the good. Go for the good player. Uh, that was Zach Parisi, but Colorado still leading 2-1 in the second. You're right. This, this conversation has repeated itself in recent <laughs> years. Uh, tonight, Kelowna and Canlis will play a one-game tiebreaker to see which team gets to play Victoria in round one of the Western Hockey League playoffs. The game's in Kamloops. The Vancouver Giants, meanwhile, know they'll play Seattle in the first round, and game one is Friday and Langley. And going into the postseason, the Giants are considered a serious title contender, which we have not seen in a while. There are a lot of reasons why this has been one of the best ever regular seasons for the Vancouver Giants, but none might be bigger than team chemistry, which improved dramatically this season. You know, uh, when the chemistry's not right, there's a lot of, a lot of finger pointing and a lot of blaming. Uh, if you make a mistake, you try to throw it on someone else. Now I think that's it's basically gone. I think this has definitely been the team I've, the closest team I've ever been on. Um, we're all we're all best buddies. We're all uh, super close with each other. Changing chemistry wasn't all that happened. Through graduation, the Giants lost the 61 goals Ty Ronning scored last year, so they've gone with scoring by committee. There isn't a 30-goal scorer on this team, and it's the first time Vancouver has ever made the playoffs without one. We have a lot of confidence in all four lines right now. Uh, we have a lot of confidence in, in, in all six defensemen and both goaltenders. So uh, when you have that kind of depth, you're not predictable. Um, when you have that kind of depth, you're not, you're not so bent on matchups. And matchups are also not a problem when you have the kind of defense Vancouver has. The Giants have cut down their goals against by over a goal per game from last year. And if you do breach their defense, then you'll have to deal with the league's best goaltending duo 
in Trent Minor and David Tendek. Does it matter who you put in goal? Right now, it doesn't. Oh, Tendek the save, a rebound, third save, fourth save. Oh. I, I know often I'm asked which goal he's starting tonight, and I'm so confident in both of them, I don't even ask the coaches sometimes because I know we've got a chance to win with either one. The Giants feel they've been playing playoff hockey since the start of the regular season, which should serve them quite well now that the playoffs are here. I think uh, everybody in the room has a confidence that we can win the, the Western League, the Memorial Cup. So um, obviously we don't want to jinx anything, but uh, that's, that's what our goals are, and anything less than that will be, uh, we won't be happy with. Well, it's not official yet, but it's looking more and more like Alfonso Davies will not be able to play for Canada this Sunday at BC Place against French Guyana. He suffered that slight injury in a game for Bayern Munich on Sunday. The coaching staff of Canada says we'll know for sure on Thursday if he'll be able to get here and play. Well, everyone knew it would take time for the Vancouver Whitecaps to gel as a team with all the new guys they have and a new coaching staff. But just the same, an 0-3 start is not what a lot of them envision. But head coach Mark DeSantos is not worried. He believes in his system, he believes in his players, and he knows the history of Major League Soccer, where sometimes starting slow is not always a sign of a disastrous season. This is an example. Last year, Montreal Impact uh, fought uh, to make the playoffs in the last game of the season. And yet their first 15 games, I think they had 10 or 11 losses in 15 games. Uh, you have example of Seattle starting, Portland starting, Dallas when they reach uh, the, 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 the Cup, uh, the MLS Cup final. So you always have stories in the league of starts like that. All right, Mike Trout is the best baseball player in the world right now, and he's about to have the best contract. Rumors have the L.A. Angels very close to giving him a 12-year deal worth $430 million, almost $36 million per year, or as someone just told me, $25,000 an inning. The uh, reason the price tag is so high is it keeps the Angels from losing Trout to free agency until he's 39 years old. He's only 27. He's already been the American League MVP twice, four times a runner-up in voting for the MVP. There are many who think by the time his career is over, he'll be regarded as one of the top 10 baseball players of all time. The weird thing is, the Angels have not had playoff success with Mike Trout. The other thing, as great a player as he is, as paid as he is, he is not very well known outside the sport of baseball. He doesn't transcend the game the way other superstars transcend their own sports. We'll see if that changes. Uh, Jamie Sinclair of the U.S., she's going to score five against Canada at the Women's World Curling Championships. Bad day for Canada. They lost twice. This game 13-6. They lost to Scotland as well. And Canada is now 3-4. and four. That Mike Trout is quite a catch, hey? You know what? <laughs> it doesn't work for scale. <laughs> Okay. Well, Chris isn't here, so I thought we might as well keep up the uh, the pun brigade, the brigade, I should say. Oh, Chris. A question tonight: whether one of the world's most infamous mysteries has finally been solved. Few criminals have captivated the world's imagination, like Jack the Ripper. Altogether, a different breed of killer. This silk shawl is believed to be the last piece of physical evidence left from his killing spree more than 130 years ago. Two biochemists who analyzed it say they detected the DNA of Catherine Eddowes, Jack the Ripper's fourth victim, in apparent bloodstains. They also found a semen stain they believe came from Aaron Kosminski, a 23-year-old Polish barber who at the time was a prime suspect. Researcher David Miller. 
I think the fact that there are two two signatures which appear to match signatures from descendants increases the confidence that what we're looking at is something which is real. Miller and his co-author published their data for the first time in a scientific paper last week. They said the semen stain contained fragments of mitochondrial DNA, genetic material children inherit only from their mothers, that match Kosminski's living relatives. Author Russell Edwards, who hired the scientist to conduct the DNA test, originally disclosed the findings in his book, Naming Jack the Ripper. He spoke to Sunday morning in 2015. We've proved this. You know, all the story absolutely fits like a jigsaw puzzle. I think they come up with rather convincing evidence. Dr. Stanley Nelson, a UCLA professor of human genetics, says the DNA case against Kosminski is strong, but not completely ironclad. They're not identifying a unique person. Actually, it's about one in 50 to one in 100 individuals in modern England have this mitochondrial type. I like the mystery. You want to stay a mystery? I think so. All right. That's it for us today. Have a good evening.